so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Well, welcome back to Weekly Tech, a podcast of ethics, theology, and philosophy in a technological society. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. David Koisis, who's a global scholar for Global Scholars Canada. He's the author of the award-winning Political Visions and Illusions that's been translated into Portuguese and shortly to be translated into Spanish, as well as We Answer to Another, Authority, Office, and the Image of God. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Koisis, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit of the background of why you originally wanted to write this book and then also about the second edition? What kind of prompted you to push for a second edition? Yes, well, I'm happy to be here, Jason. And uh, it it really all started almost 35 years ago uh, when I started teaching at a, a small Christian university here in southern Ontario in Canada. And I was responsible to teach a course on modern political ideologies. And I don't know whether it had ever been taught before. Perhaps my predecessor had taught it. But um, I started looking for books that I might be able to use for that. And, of course, this was in the pre-Internet days. Uh, We had these orange volumes called Books in Print that we had to page through furiously to try to find what we wanted. And then we had to actually write letters or or phone the publishers to have them uh, send them to us. And um, as a Christian who um, was teaching at a Christian university, I thought the material needed to be handled in a a distinctive way. So uh, uh, just one of the ordinary textbooks would not necessarily do. But what ended up happening is that I couldn't find a textbook that did what I thought needed to be done in such a course. So I ended up, I guess, throwing caution to the wind. I ordered, I ordered a, one of the standard textbooks, and I, I, um, uh, at the end of the course, the students complained that I didn't use it very much because I was, I was basically going my own way. About uh, in the mid-1990s, I, I started writing using the notes that I had t- used for this course, and I started writing. Uh, I quickly wrote about five chapters, which I ended up, most of which I ended up um, discarding at, at some point. But then it, it took me until about 2001 to write this book in between teaching and also getting married and having a daughter and, and, uh, and so forth. So at, at, at that point, I, um, I submitted the manuscript. I was given a, a sabbatical in 2001 from my, the institution where I was teaching. And I um, was, uh, was able to finish the book. I sent it to InterVarsity Press near my hometown of Chicago. And, and they accepted it for publication. And I was, of course, pleased with that. And, and it ended up um, 
having quite the impact. I think it's it's been a steady seller for the for the publisher, and and it was used in theological seminaries as well. Um, as for the second edition, the, this um, I, I had wanted to write a second edition for for quite some time. I ended up uh, retiring a, a few years ago, and then I talked to the people at IVP and asked whether they thought a second edition might be appropriate. And they said, "Yeah, go ahead, run with it." So that's exactly what I did. And and it seems to me that since the the turn of the millennium, uh, a lot of things have changed. I think some of the the ideologies that I deal with in my books. They have mutated in some fashion, or or maybe um, uh, metastasized, if if you will. You know, they they become uh, they become more destructive. I think, and um, I think this this is true of liberalism, uh, which is I think is arguably the most dominant political ideology in the Western world, and certainly in North America. Uh, historically, the United States more than Canada, but in some ways, I think Canada has moved ahead of the U.S. in terms of its loyalty to the larger liberal tradition. And it struck me as well that each of these ideologies is telling its own story. And they mimic their parodies of the biblical redemptive narrative. So, you know, if when you read the Bible, you're not reading so much ancient literature that happened to be compiled by people 2,000 or so years ago. But we're reading a story that runs from the very beginning, from Genesis, Genesis 1, through the fall into sin, and then through, the, through all of the rest of the Bible, God's plan for salvation for, for humanity, up until the book of Revelation, where we, uh, uh, where we have the promise of the ultimate consummation of God's kingdom when he, uh, when he returns. And, uh, and, and each of the ideologies tells a similar kind of a story. And uh, I think that's, that's, it's most obvious with Marxism, because Marxism, it has been widely said, is a, is a Christian heresy. But I think that's, that's true not only of Marxism, but I think it's true of nationalism. I think it's, it's true of liberalism. I think it's true of, uh, of, the, of the other ideologies. I didn't really deal with anarchism, but I think anarchism could be put into that category as well. So I thought that, that the story element of the ideologies needed to be um, pushed to the front burner in the second edition, and that's exactly what I did. Yeah, and I think that really shows because I think a lot of listeners were probably familiar with the original version in 2003, but seeing that shift early on and how it plays out through the second edition for me was really interesting, especially because, as you mentioned, these ideologies are not just a static set of principles, uh, but they're really a story, as you've been alluding to, and they're contained in, in kind of a worldview. Uh, which especially as I teach worldview uh, at a local Christian college here, it's been really fun seeing students kind of eyes light up when they start to see how a worldview kind of really informs the way that we go about all of life, not just cognitively, but even our hearts and our desires and kind of all of this tied together. And so I think you model that really well in the second edition that I really appreciated. One of the things that I, other things that I appreciate about the book is that you cut through a lot of the baggage and a lot of the connotations that is surrounding the word ideology. And so I wanted to take a minute just to define, what do you mean by ideology in the book? How do you use it? And kind of how does that then form as you dig into these other ideologies? Kind of what is that ideology and how does it influence or shape the story of that redemptive narrative that we've been talking about? Yes, well, well, ideology, this is, this is one of the reasons why the books that I was looking for back in 1987, why they, why they, they didn't really address ideology in, in the way that I thought they ought to. So they, you know, they, they would define it as basically ideas about politics or maybe some kind of program of sorts. But, uh, but what, what I tried to, to bring into this book, uh, was the notion that, that these ideologies are, are religious. They're basically religious. 
And, you know, there's not going to be always apparent if you're, if you're watching parliamentary debates on television or congressional debates, you know, in the States. Um, that's not always going to, going to be apparent. But behind all of the things that are going on in legislative chambers, the sorts of things that are going on in, in executive mansions and the like, uh, there's, there's some kind of religious worldview behind those and, and driving them in some way. It may not be a, a particularly pure worldview. It's probably likely to be something of a, of a combination of a lot of different convictions, which may not fit together very well in a, in, in a coherent whole, but they're nevertheless there, and they're motivating people in a particular direction. And one of the things that I really appreciate about you saying that is I was recently even having a conversation with a friend of mine and was talking about how a secular, purely secular worldview is actually a religious worldview. And as you said earlier, that kind of struck him. Not It kind of – he bowed up a little bit. He didn't really like that when I said it. But essentially, a lot of – or all of these ideologies are religious in nature. There's some kind of end purpose. There's some kind of end goal. And can you expand then how a lot of these ideologies are kind of religious in nature? Uh, what do you mean by that? Yes, this is, this is where I think um, we have as Christians, I think we have resources to be able to to clarify things in a way that um, that the larger world cannot do so with the, with the same ease. So, um, you know, I, I my grandfather was my maternal grandfather was an agnostic. Um, you know, he he claimed that he didn't believe in God, but he had a kind of a a very peculiar set of beliefs, which which might be called New Age. Uh, you know, astrology, past lives, and UFOs and things like that. You know, and and I've I've discovered since then that for an agnostic, he wasn't that unusual. You know, the, if people cease believing in the God who has revealed Himself uniquely in Jesus Christ, they have to believe in something else. If you're one of these new atheist authors, then it may be reason or the scientific method. And your zeal for that is, is going to show up. And some people say, well, I'm not very religious. Well, you are, but you have to probe beneath the surface to see, well, what is driving you? What's your, your ultimate commitment to? And it, it, it's always going to be something in every single person. Obviously, as we shift in kind of to the meat of the book, obviously you walk through five predominant or prevailing ideologies through the book, and we could easily spend a podcast or multiple podcasts just talking about one of them. Um, and so instead of digging into all of them, I just kind of wanted to say what were maybe one or two that you thought are the, probably the most predominant or the most um, important for Christians as they're digging into a lot of these ideologies? Where are we seeing those in our society? How are they playing out? And then how does a Christian kind of interact or respond to them? Yes, and, and I, I think maybe I mentioned liberalism earlier, and maybe that's the place to start because I think liberalism is the predominant ideology in the United States. You know, the Declaration of Independence is a liberal document. Uh, the Constitution, in some measure, is a liberal document as well, even though there are many other elements and many other factors that went into forming the, uh, the U.S. Constitution, you know, including the whole history of the English Constitution going back to Magna Carta in 1215 and so forth. But when I, when I say liberalism, I don't necessarily mean the way that it's, it's used in popular debates. You know, so Joe Biden is supposed to be a liberal, and um, and uh, his predecessor um, uh, Donald Trump was a conservative. You know, I'm not using it in that sense, but there's a larger liberal tradition in in which the which frames the debates that take place within the United States Congress or or in Canada's House of Commons, and and liberalism tends to frame those debates. So there's a belief that that somehow all communities um, must be reshaped as voluntary associations. 
So to talk about institutions, basic institutions such as marriage, family, the church institution and the state, you know, for, for, for liberalism, they want to try to recast those as mere voluntary associations. In John Locke's um, letter on toleration in the 17th century, we find a, a definition of church, which basically makes it into a kind of a voluntary association that you have men getting together to worship in the way that they that they believe that God wants them to worship but it's a very it's a very thin ecclesiology it it says nothing about the grace of God it says nothing about God's bringing us into a covenant relationship with himself but it's all about the formation of a particular community by these sovereign individuals who decide they want to get together to worship God in the way they think best hugely influential in the english speaking world yeah and that's one of the things I was even just this morning listening uh, through the Constitution of Knowledge, Jonathan Rausch, uh, his new book talking about kind of the liberal order, especially in light of a lot of the kind of derivations of truth or the degradation in many ways of truth through misinformation and disinformation, fake news, et cetera. And he was talking a lot about kind of this classical liberal tradition. And in the book, one of the things that I appreciate is you lay out five questions, kind of diagnostic questions as we kind of approach these worldviews. And so I wanted to see, can you take those kind of five questions and apply them to the concept of liberalism, where are there goods in liberalism that we should celebrate? And then also where are some of the dangers within a liberalism that we should be aware of as Christians? That's right. Yeah. So this, this comes from page 25 of the, uh, of the second edition. And there are five questions that I lay out in terms of analyzing the ideology. So what is their creational basis? In other words, what facets of God's creation have they rightly focused on, even as they have effectively deified them? You know, and for liberalism, I think that's individual freedom, you know, individual liberty. It's it's a genuine good. It's something that um, that is guaranteed in the in the uh, first ten amendments to the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights. We have our Charter of Rights and Freedoms here in in Canada. Those are very good things. Um, what what do they see as a source of evil? Well, I think in um, I'm going to use a fancy word, heteronomous authority. In other words, an authority that comes outside of our own wills being somehow imposed on us. That's, that's the source of evil, according to liberals, and not just liberals, but I think probably the adherence of, of many of the ideologies that, um, that we are faced with in the, in the contemporary world. Um, where do they locate the source of salvation, and what redemptive story do they tell? Well, in liberalism, it's a kind of continual progress in liberating ourselves from various constraints, whether they're natural constraints, whether there are political constraints, economic constraints, and somehow as we, as we free ourselves from those, that we are, um, we are attaining uh, salvation. You know, a secular salvation, but it's a religious salvation all the same. Which inconsistencies have led to internal tensions within the ideology itself? Well, the early liberals, for example, um, wanted to have a strictly limited state. But within liberalism, there's, there's also this, this emphasis on the individual will. What happens if these individuals decide that they don't want the state to be quite as limited as, as their parents and grandparents had wanted? What if they want the state to provide this and that and, and other benefits for them as well? And that's a tension that we find right in the middle of liberalism, and it has fueled debates between so-called conservatives and so-called liberals in the United States for generations. Uh, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal expanded the state into to providing more services, uh, 
you know, it probably had to be done in the context of the Great Depression. I'm not, I would never vilify the welfare state as, as some libertarians might. But, uh, but, but at the same time, there's also, there's also a tension right within the heart of liberalism that fuels the debates that go on within it and may perhaps lead to the end of liberalism at some point in the future. And then finally, to what extent are they able to account for the distinct place of politics in God's world? Um, liberalism doesn't do a very good job of this because politics is basically nothing more than the byproduct of, of individuals getting together into a kind of social contract. So, you know, from I think a biblical understanding of, of political authority is that political authority must do justice. And of course, commands to do justice are found throughout the Bible in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah or the Pentateuch. They're found in the Proverbs. They're found in the prophets and so forth. And, and in liberalism, justice is, is, if it happens at all, is a byproduct of the, of the collective wills of individuals. And so I think in many respects, liberalism fails on, on, that, on that count. It, it can't really account for the place of justice in God's world and the need for, for a political authority to be able to adjudicate the disputes that um, arise within an, a normal human society. And that's one of the things that I'm really thankful, kind of as you're walking through and kind of saying the good and the bad of liberalism, one of the things that I really appreciate about your book is that Often, I think in society, especially in our public discourse and increasingly online, we throw out labels, whether liberal, conservative, we say this is Marxist, this is socialist. And often, I don't think we totally understand. I was watching a video the other day where a lady was talking about how this was totalitarian, Marxist, and fascist. And it was she was talking about the same thing. And that's where I think these categories, sometimes these labels get used in ways that we just use them to demean the other side, to take them down, to lend their arguments that say that they're not credible. And so I think one that gets thrown out a lot lately is the concept of Marxism. Obviously, you dig into Marxism a little bit in the book. So I was just wondering if you could give listeners kind of a, you know, a 30-second or a minute kind of intro to Marxism. What is Marxism? Um, obviously, we hear Marxists used all the time, especially in a lot of the debates surrounding critical race theory or critical theory um, that these are Marxist ideologies. But often I don't think we all always know or know where to go to get some of the answers to dig in on some of these concepts. So can you expand a little bit on the concept of Marxism and then kind of engage it from a Christian worldview? Sure, yeah. Karl Marx um, um, was a 19th century figure, born 1818 and died in, I think, 1818 or 1819 and died in 1883. You know, so he lived throughout a, a big swath of the 19th century, which saw the Industrial Revolution in, in much of Europe at that time. Uh, it had started originally in Great Britain. It spread to the United States, other European countries as well. And he was scandalized by the treatment of the industrial workers at that time. And, and he believed that basically history is motivated by material factors. So, you know, we are homo faber, man, man the maker. We make our own subsistence. We, we make, uh, the world around us, which is, which is perfectly true. But for, for Marx, those material factors are what are driving history. So if anybody claims that they are coming up with a philosophy of the mind, you know, of, of Hegel, who was a huge influence on Marx, uh, you know, well, they can't really be believed because it's really material factors that are, that are driving them in some fashion. The contemporary, you know, there, there are people who talk about cultural Marxists, cultural Marxism. I think it's a legitimate label, but I think it, it, it has also been used as a term of derision, and it may have muddied the waters just to some degree. I think the, the moment of truth in that label 
is that what we have happening is that is that a number of academics, philosophers, perhaps maybe um, maybe literature um, professors, perhaps are 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 dividing humanity into two groups of people, one of whom is labeled oppressor and the other of which is is labeled oppressed, and and that defines uh, almost single-handedly it defines the reality of the world in which we live. So if you're a, if you're a radical feminist, it's going to be males versus females. If you're a, um, if you're a critical race theorist, then it's going to be whites versus blacks or perhaps whites versus non-whites. So, you know, some, some kind of group is going to be, be the, the, almost the permanent marker of the division between oppressed and oppressors. Whereas in the real world, and I think this is what the, what the gospel has to say, is that we are, we can't easily sort ourselves into categories of oppressed and oppressor. This is something that the, the British missionary bishop, Leslie Newbegin, wrote about in, in his books, that uh, the, we all come before God as simultaneously oppressors and oppressed. You know, that, that, that sometimes my, act, my actions are oppressive to somebody else, and that's simply the definition of sin. Or else it may be that somebody somebody else's actions are oppressing me in some in some way and again so that a sin is being committed against me so rather than dividing humanity into two groups one of which is the innocent and the other of which is is the guilty that we all have to recognize that each of us is guilty you know of sin and that's why Jesus Christ came into the world to save us from our sins that's something that, that I think Marx is unable to, and his followers are unable to, uh, to make sense of, I think, in the way that the Christian gospel does. As you start to close out the book, after you've walked through these five major ideologies, one of the things that I do appreciate is you kind of describe these two predominant Christian responses. There's the more kind of Catholic response, and then one that obviously I can tell even just from hearing you talk that you're drawn to, especially is kind of this Dutch Reformed perspective. So can you explain a little bit more about what is the reformed kind of approach to uh, society itself and public theology? And then how does that kind of play itself out in a lot of uh, times when we're talking about various ideologies? Because I think you've modeled it really well talking about liberalism and Marxism, kind of that reformed approach. But can you be a little bit more specific about kind of the tenets of the reformed approach and how that plays itself out? Yeah, certainly. I've I've been very much influenced by a man by the name of Abraham Kuyper, born in the Netherlands, 1837, died in 1920. So last year was the centenary of his of his death, um, and he uh, was a polymath. You know, he he stretched himself way too thin. He, he was a theologian. He was a professor. He founded a university. He founded a political party in the Netherlands. Uh, he founded a church denomination uh, amongst. Um, Christians who, who were dissidents from the, the state church at that time, the Nederlandse Hervormdekerk, the, the, the Dutch Reformed Church at that time. So he was um, all over the place. But one of the, one of the things that I find particularly helpful about him is that his understanding of society, I think, represents uh, a significant improvement over the, the visions that we have from these ideologies that I write about in my, in my book. So, you know, rather than trying to find a single principle of unity within something in human society, okay? Rather than trying to find, you know, whether it's the individual or it's the economic class or maybe just a tradition of, of some sort, if we're talking about conservatives, that we recognize that God is ultimately sovereign and that below God, we have the whole diversity of the creation. 
So just as God has created a variety of creatures, you know, giraffes and elephants and, and ants and mosquitoes and, and uh, birds and, and, and so forth and vegetables and plants and the like, so human society has a diversity of social formations w- within them. So in a mature differentiated society such as Canada or the United States, Western Europe, and I think probably now, in some fashion, maybe the rest of the world as, as well, because we are, um, we're living in Marshall McLuhan's global village, if, if you will. But, uh, you know, we, we have families, we have marriages, we have, we have uh, the state, we have uh, uh, political parties, we have labor unions, we have business enterprises, we have uh, museums, we have dance troops artist cooperatives, you know, you go all the way down the line, just a, a huge variety that I, I could not possibly name all of them, corporate entities of, of various sorts, and each of them has its own role to play within human society. And so what, what, what Kuiper was protesting against in his, um, in his writings and in, in his actions is the notion that somehow education, for example, ought to be dominated by the state. Uh, or that the state ought to dominate business enterprises, which was what was attempted during the communist era in the Soviet Union and, and elsewhere. And it, it flies in the face of this, this diversity that God has created us for within the larger human society. And I think that's the genius of Kuiper. He came up with this notion of, in Dutch, it's souverainiteit in eigen kring. It's sovereignty in its own sphere. It's sometimes simply called um, sphere sovereignty. The expression that I use is societal pluriformity or the pluriformity of authorities, which is the expression that I use in my second book, uh, We Answer to Another, Authority, Office, and the Image of God. So I guess to dig in a little bit on that, especially within that reform tradition, what's the role of justice? Because I think justice is one of those big questions uh, that we're dealing with in a North American context, but we're also dealing with even kind of in a worldwide context. Is what is the nature of justice? What is the basis of justice? And how do we go about pursuing justice? And each of these ideologies that you described in the book have their own version of not only what justice is, but also how we are to go about pursuing it. And so within this kind of reform tradition that you've been describing, can you talk a little bit about the role of justice and how we as the people of God are to go about pursuing justice? That's right. And and it has to be done very carefully. You know, there there, there are no real slogans that will help us to gain an understanding of, of justice. You know, if you're a Marxist, you're going to say, well, Workers of the world unite, and and you know whatever conduces to the victory of the working class, that's justice, uh, you know. But where, but whereas I think in in this differentiated society that has all this pluriformity of communities of authorities and so forth, I think I think justice requires that we weigh in the balance the various legitimate considerations that that may come into conflict in some fashion. Now, within the context of marriage, justice means that that the spouses are faithful to each other. You know, if a, if a husband cheats on his wife or a wife cheats on 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 her husband, you know that that they're being unfaithful, but they're also committing an injustice. Uh, you know, the same way within a, within a family context. You know, if you if you are not encouraging your children, if you're not being emotionally supportive of them, then there's a sense in which you're doing an injustice to your children. If you're not disciplining them properly, you're doing an injustice to your children. In the context of the larger society, there's something called public justice, and that requires that political authorities and and you know, in in our era, we talk about the state as the political community. 
of citizens led by their government. The political authority must weigh in the balance the various claims that are made by these different authorities within society and make decisions, hard decisions, not easy decisions, on the basis of understanding that each of these has its own role to play within society. So if the, fam- the family has specific needs that are peculiar to the family, a business enterprise has peculiar needs that are peculiar to a business enterprise, same can be said of a labor union as well, and uh, um, all of the various other responsible agents that we find in, in a normal human society. Well, obviously, this has been a really fun conversation. We could go a hundred different ways and a hundred different directions and obviously even spend an entire podcast just talking about each of the kind of questions that we've addressed today. Um, but I really appreciate this introduction for a lot of folks. Those who haven't or aren't familiar with your book, we do encourage listeners to go and grab that. It's Political Visions and Illusions. It's the new second edition, uh, which is, the, as we talked about earlier, you talk a little bit more about worldview and in the role of story within these ideologies. But as we end our time together, Dr. Koises, I want to ask, what are maybe one or two resources that you might recommend for folks that want to dig a little bit deeper? Um, obviously, you were looking for a book like the one you wrote, so maybe there aren't as many, but especially Censures has published, maybe there are others, or there might be some good kind of primers on some of these. If folks want to dig a little bit deeper on Kuiper or they want to dig a little bit deeper on liberalism or Marxism, where would you point people if they wanted to take that next step in some of these conversations? Yeah, well, three books I, I, I'd recommend. One of them is written by um, somebody who's been a mentor to me, and I mentioned that in the in the acknowledgments of political visions and illusions. By the name of of Albert M. Walters, Al Walters. He he actually lives not far from us here in Hamilton, you know, and he's he's been a good friend of mine for over forty years now. He wrote a book called Creation Regained. It's published by Erdman's in Grand Rapids. It's that's in a second edition as well, and uh, I would urge anybody who is interested in the worldview behind political visions and illusions to read that. You know, that's the granddaddy of all the worldview books that's been, um, that have been published in, in, in recent years, and I would, I would recommend going to that. A book that was published shortly before the second edition of, of my book is Patrick Dunin, Why Liberalism Failed. And I think that's an absolutely brilliant analysis of liberalism uh, in our Western societies. And, and it was published, uh, I do allude to it in the second edition because it came out, I think, the year before my book came out. A very interesting book. He teaches at Notre Dame, which is my alma mater. Um, he teaches in the, in the same department where I got my PhD back in the 1980s. Um, excellent book. And then the third book was written by Carl Truman. Um, and it's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to the Sexual Revolution. Now, this is just a, a brilliant book. It, it, uh, it, it, it could have been published by University Press. It's of that, of that quality, but it was actually published by Crossway in, um, in Wheaton, Illinois, where, where the, the, my own hometown. So um, um, I would anybody who wants to know about some of the strange things that are, that are happening in the world today and some of these movements, uh, to, to, to read that book and grapple with it because it's a, it's a brilliant book. And I think, it, um, I think we need to read it and to, to discuss it. Yeah, and it's, it's a really important book. And for listeners' sake, we'll make sure to link to all three of the books that Dr. Coyce has mentioned, but especially with Dr. Truman. We actually had Dr. Truman on Weekly Tech earlier this year, and we're able to talk to him about the book. And so we'll make sure to link to that for listeners' sake as well if they want to dig in. But I did notice I was kind of cool to see Crossway's actually producing a smaller, kind of more approachable version 
um, of that book. And the next, I think it's coming out maybe next February or so. So I know that'll be a nice, uh, more accessible uh, for kind of a wider audience to kind of be introduced to a lot of those ideas. But Dr. Koizis, thank you so much for being here on Weekly Tech. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I really appreciate your ministry and especially your writing. Um, it's helped form and shape a lot of the ways that I've approached politics, ways that I've approached a lot of these ideologies. And so just thank you. It's been a real honor to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that, and I enjoyed being here. Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoy Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing, and they also help share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Koisis and learn more about his book, as well as the recommended resources that he mentioned in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as to stay up-to-date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week. 